Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts and philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Um, many of you guys will, will notice if you're watching on YouTube that the background's a little bit different. I'm here at Aqualand, the home, the headquarters of Aquascape. Um, and this is awesome. I'm super, ex- super stoked, super excited to be here. Uh, we're going to be doing a tour of the whole facility after this, but with me today, I have with me uh, Ed the Pond Professor, Ed Ballou, and we're going to be talking about all sorts of zoology and ecology and the science that goes into their pond making business. So I'm really excited for that. Um, some of you guys may have seen Greg. He came on the podcast a, a couple episodes back um, and we talked about Ed a little bit. So here we are. We're doing it. Before we jump in, uh, I just want to thank everyone over at Patreon who's supporting the podcast. Uh, if you guys have benefited from this podcast, then please consider becoming a Patreon uh, patron over there. You can find a link in the description. Another way is you can subscribe on YouTube. That would be huge. And then above and beyond, this would really help if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and leave me a comment. That would be absolutely huge. So without further ado, uh, let's bring Ed in. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Oh, it's an honor. Thanks, Parker. Uh, dude, I just want to I just want to jump in because there's a lot that I really want to ask you. But uh, first and foremost, man, are are you fr- you're from Southern, just like Chicagoland area? Yeah, correct. I'm from Palos Heights, which is the south uh, southwest suburb of Chicago. Okay, so um, we're going to talk about your your education and stuff like that. Um, I grew up in Lombard, Illinois, and um, man, same kind of stuff as you, uh, just from knowing a little bit, like I love turtles, frogs, fish, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I want to get in a little bit to like the rivers and the streams in Chicagoland. Just real quick, man, our our streams are always, they're chocolate milk. Right. Is that our fault to be like canalize them or is that just because of the soil? Yeah, that you know what, that is a great question. Um, I'm going to have to say it is our fault because I have visited, uh, I currently live in Sugar Grove, Illinois, so I'm kind of on the outside fringe. Yeah. Um, and there are some of the uh, smaller creeks and rivers in that area that I'll, I'll frequent with my son. We go fishing, we go wading, just exploring, and uh, they're spotless. Um, I mean, they look phenomenal. So the diversity of a life and everything inside of them is incredible. Um, and that's because they have a pretty protected watershed. So what has kind of happened, and again, I can't uh, really wave a magic wand and go back a hundred and some years ago to actually see firsthand what these rivers look like. But I know because of uh, because of our development, because of increasing um, or uh, increasing the amount of impermeable water watersheds in the area by parking lots, roadways, roofs, and things like that, We've altered the landscape dramatically. We've removed uh, the natural wetlands and marshlands and things like that, which actually um, in our area, this area of Chicago or northeastern Illinois was all very marshy. So there was yes. a lot of it's very, very flat, a lot of marshland. And those areas um, are incredible reservoirs for sediments and nutrients and things like that. So they pull all those toxins and stuff out of the water. So when those things are associated with a watershed, the water quality is usually very, very good. So I'm assuming that we had incredible water quality in this area. Uh, we also have uh, a lot of limestone. So we have a, we have a good, uh, we have a good bed of impermeable rock underneath everything underlying, underlying all of our water features. Um, that also adds important minerals into the water. So mm-hmm. I think everything probably was look was dramatically different than it is today. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that's great. I, I just had to get that out there. And I, I tell people all the time that uh, Chicagoland's a swamp. 
You know, yep. you look, if you're taking the train, you look out and you see all these marshes. Most people think that's gross. I'm always looking for Blanding's turtles or spotted <laughs> turtles or something just in case. Um, but yeah, it's all this spongy stuff. And I uh, grew up in Lombard and our basement's all flooded all the yep. time. And uh, it's because you chop down all the fens and you pave over them or you make them into this grass. And then you wonder, hey, why is there water in my basement? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's no place for it to go. So mm-hmm. I'm sure you're probably familiar with the uh, Deep Tunnel Project here in Chicago. Are you, are you familiar with that? I'm not actually, no. So Deep Tunnel Project was started, I believe, in the late 60s. It's a massive underground tunnel system that goes under Chicago. Um, mm-hmm. It holds billions of gallons of water. Um, they cut it through solid bedrock. So wow. there's actually a shaft that goes down 300, I believe it's around 300 feet below the city of Chicago. It's an underground tank that they cut out of limestone. And um, what happens is when we get heavy rains, um, we're supposed to filter that water. So we're supposed to kind of pre-filter it. So what happens is we have combined sewer systems uh, throughout a lot of Chicago. So that means our sewage water as well as storm water goes to a wastewater treatment facility. It'll get treated before it's released into the local rivers, lakes, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, our water actually typically goes into the canal system, which goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Okay. But the EPA has regulations in place, and we're supposed to meet certain water quality levels. So what the deep reservoir was done, this underground tunnel system, was during a heavy rain, um, the wastewater treatment facilities get a tsunami of water coming down the pipe system at, 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 towards them. They can't filter it fast enough. Yeah. So they take this water, they pump it into this underground tank, and then they will, after the rain, this big tank fills up with water, nasty sewage water, um, <laughs> yeah. and then they'll slowly draw it down and they'll filter it, and then they'll discharge it back into the river system. So it actually it acts like a big retention pond, basically. So all the retention ponds you see, that's yeah. exactly what they're supposed to do. The problem is... Um, so, again, I could throw out a bunch of different numbers if you want to hear some numbers here. But yeah. uh, um, an acre, uh, a surface acre, so 43,560 square feet is one surface acre. One inch of water on an acre is 27,000 gallons of water. So mm-hmm. when you start multiplying that out by the thousands of square miles of Chicago, um, a one-inch rain event will create billions, actually tens of billions of gallons of wastewater, stormwater that needs to be dealt with. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. Actually, I did the calculation and a a while ago for a presentation, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to see if I have the number right, Mm -hmm. but Willis tower in Chicago, Sears tower, whatever you want to call it. One of the largest buildings in the world, one inch of rain on uh, cook County. So just on the Chicagoland area, one inch of rain will fill that building 43 times with water. Holy cow. That's just Chicago. That's not. That's, that's one inch. That's just that's one just inch. One inch of rain. We get five inches of rain sometimes in heavy storms. Yeah. So it's ridiculous. It's like so much water that we can't even fathom it. Yeah. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it is cool. Well, it's it's crazy too because like this was a swampland. So there would be dried fens right. that would be ready to suck up all that water. Yep. And so not, not only do we have all this hard surface and uh, parking lots and stuff as well. Um, but this area was supposed to receive that kind of water. Correct. And it, and it's not, yeah. Wow. That's great. Well, Ed, so we, we, we jumped in quick cause I couldn't help myself, <laughs> but, but, uh, man, how'd you get so smart? How'd you, how'd you become the, the pond professor? How'd you get into studying this type of stuff? So just, just like you were talking about earlier, uh, growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, you know, I spent, uh, my, my time off, uh, lakes, rivers, streams, woods, you know, looking for frogs, turtles, coming home covered in mud and everything. So, I mean, it was just, I just loved it. And, uh, you know, my parents also, you know, they they kind of fed into that, you know, for they would take me to Brookfield Zoo all the time. And we would go on trips up into Wisconsin and fishing and snorkeling and boating and, you know, hang it out on, you know, on the beach and, you know, all these different uh, aquatic activities. So when it came time for me to do college, I'm like, I got to, I'm just going to study the sciences. Um, so I, I went into uh, Eastern Illinois University and um, I fell in love, not just with zoology, but also uh, ecology and then more specifically limnology, which is the study of freshwater ecosystems. So mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a water person. I mean, you look around if you're going to Africa and you want to see the big game go to the water hole, you know, that's where everything is going to go. I mean, everything needs water. So you go where the animals are. 
And those zones, that uh, that little habitat, it's called the riparian zone. It's where the mm -hmm. water meets the land. It's the most biologically diverse habitat on planet Earth. I mean, it rivals the uh, you know the the uh, the rainforest. It rivals the, uh, the the coral reefs and things like that. Unbelievably diverse, and um, so and we can see that right here in northern Illinois. So I mean, you, you know, the amount of life that you're going to see just in that little narrow margin is really amazing. So I, I fell in love with it, and um, I, I got hooked up with Aquascape. Um, I was actually working as an environmental chemist before before I started here at Aquascape, and I was uh, kind of trapped in a lab. Super interesting work. I was working with hazardous waste and water water quality analysis, um, but um, I'm a field person. You know, yeah. when I got a degree in zoology, I had you know these big aspirations and dreams of being a researcher out in the middle of nowhere, you know, looking for cool, you know, un unnamed animals and stuff like that. And uh, that was not the reality. So I'm like, oh, I got to change something real quick. Uh, so yeah. I got hooked up with Aquascape, and uh, I love it because it gives me an opportunity to actually bring that little bit of life into urban and suburban backyards, yeah. you know, by, by doing these little backyard habitats, the amount of, uh, of, of animal life that you'll see is incredible. And I think what's really unique about it is by doing a small, I, I, I have a philosophy I call H2O. Mm -hmm. um, H2O, as we know, is, is, is water, but H2O to me uh, stands for homes to oceans. Yeah. So by doing a small backyard habitat, um, it will connect people to aquatic ecosystems. And if you can understand a small backyard aquatic ecosystem, you could really understand what's happening on a global scale in our oceans. It just happens faster. You know, like if you see, a, um, you know, a fish kill in your backyard, it happened for a reason. You know, it mm -hmm. could be because of a heavy rain. It could be because you sprayed something on, you know, your tomatoes, you know, and it just happened to drift in there and it killed fish off. But everything has there's a ripple effect according to all these different things so i think it's really neat to see it on a smaller scale and you could see it with fish tanks and things but when you do it outdoors it's much more dynamic because mm -hmm. you're opening yourself up to the real world yeah well so when you got involved with greg um was there was an expression that, that you said he he talked about uh, working with mother nature instead of against mother nature so was this already kind of in the DNA of of Aquascape, or did um, did you have to push the ball uphill to say no? We need to you know take more time to be more uh, uh, environmentally friendly and stuff. Um, you know, I, I think it was definitely in motion. Um, I definitely, you know, when I started with Greg, um, you know, when I went on my first interview, just sitting in his basement at his you know at his parents' house, um, you know, we hit it off right away because he was a scuba diver. He had turtles. You know, he was uh, he had aquariums growing up. So we had a lot of similarities. We're completely different people. <laughs> we, have a, we have a ton of similarities. And it was all kind of that environmental message out there. So he learned, you know, um, himself for the, you know, the hard way, basically, by having stuff collapse on him on his initial first ponds that he built. You know, he had challenges with it. And then he finally started thinking, I got to I got to figure out how, how to work with nature here. Yeah. Well, so that's um, I've never heard of limnology. I, I love this stuff. I'm, I'm big into herpetology. Um, yeah. I like the environment because. I want Blanding's turtles to survive. I, <laughs> that's, like, awesome. that's it. Um, so you went the other way. You, you said, let's take this holistic like approach. All the animals need the water and stuff like that. Can you tell me a little bit more like about limnology? How, how could someone get into that? And what if they do start studying that? How is that going to be different than just um, ecology uh, more broadly construed? So limnology is the study of freshwater ecosystems. So it's going to study, uh, you know, everything from reservoirs, lakes, uh, rivers, streams, creeks, and everything. But it is an it is a branch of ecology, but it focuses just on just on that aquatic element. But when you start talking about, um, so there was uh, Stephen Forbes. Uh, you go back actually. He grew up here in Illinois. Hmm. Um, he's kind of considered one of the fathers of ecology and limnology. Um, he worked at the Illinois Department of Natural Resources. Uh, he studied a school up in Wisconsin. Uh, I believe he worked at the University of Illinois, if I'm, if I'm correct. Um, but he did a study on uh, one of the lakes in Madison, Wisconsin, um, Lake... Um, Oh boy, I'm drawing a blank on the name now, but it's right in right in the middle of Madison, Wisconsin, um, and he called it the lake as a microcosm. So mm -hmm. he was the first really to say um, 
ichthyologist, let me back up a second. So yeah. you're, you're into herpetology, you know, mm-hmm. which is a study of reptiles, uh, amphibians. Um, a ichthyologist is going to study fish. A, um, a, a mycologist will study, you know, uh, algae. Um, so you could specialize in all these specific little disciplines. But what he did was he pulled all those dif- disciplines together and said, okay, let's take this this aquatic ecosystem. I cannot study a uh, the northern pike, which is going to be an apex predator in this lake system, without understanding all the all the things it eats. Yeah. Um, and then once you start saying, okay, all these little things that it eats, you know, so it goes all the way down to planktivorous fish, you know, so these small little minnows and things are actually going to work their way up through the food chain. So mm-hmm. he started putting all these pieces together saying, well, gosh, if, I, if I'm going to study this animal, I have to study this one. And it eats the plankton and the plankton is going to grow off of the hardness that's in the water, which is going to be impacted by the amount of rainwater and the watershed and the aquatic plants. So he started putting all these pieces together and said, oh my gosh, you know, this lake ecosystem is its own little miniature word world in itself, which is truly what limnology is. So you're taking all the disciplines in, into consideration from water chemistry, uh, the geology, the geography, um, the, the, uh, the, the precipitation patterns, uh, you know, you name it, all these different factors that are coming together are going to impact that uh, that that one little ecosystem, yeah. which is which is really really in, amazing stuff. Uh, you yeah. know, you start you know breaking it all down into those little bits and pieces. Well, and it's crazy. It's it's perfect for you because you're making these little ecosystems, these little worlds. I always like to think of it like when I have aquariums or I, I built my own little tiny pond. Yeah, and it's like I get to create this little world. With that comes this responsibility that I'm not. I'm not God. I don't know how to put everything together. And so I might have a fish kill or I might grow too much algae because there's too much nutrients in the water. Um, but it's perfect for you guys. When you when you make a pond, are you considering like what kind of rock is going into it or is that too much? Is that like just whatever rocks we can get? No, we definitely do. So we're going to try to make it um, ideally uh, biotope specific, you know, so if, if we know what, uh, what animals we want to put inside of it, and if we know what uh, water quality parameters we're looking for, we mm-hmm. will modify, uh, we will definitely modify some of those rock choices. Granite is the easiest, um, because um, granite is basically very inert. So it's not going to release a lot of minerals into the water. So we can really kind of control it. Uh, once we start getting into the limestones, the sandstones and shales and things like that, um, some of the softer sedimentary stones, they will actually release uh, dissolved compounds into the water. And if that occurs, we have to know what those ramifications will be. So it could increase the water hardness or not can, it will increase the water hardness. It's going to stabilize things, which is not a bad thing, but we have to understand what the goals are. So if we're going to have different types of aquatic plants, um, if it's going to be for koi fish, you know, I do a lot of work for different zoos. Um, I, I work a lot down in South Florida for, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of big herpetology people. So, you know, doing, doing projects for, um, you know, different types of tortoises and uh, um, al- alligators and <laughs> river otters and, you know, you name it, water monitors, et cetera. So we can do a lot of really, really unique things. Yeah. Well, it, that's so awesome. I, I just think about the different ones I've seen you do, uh, like Greg's Turtle Haven. If it's anything with turtles, like I'm in, I'm watching that several <laughs> times. Um, can you explain to us, like, how, how does um, – I know they're going to be different, but you have you have the uh, biofilters and stuff like that. Most people think when they're building a pond, they've got a big suction thing. It's gonna it's got a big filter, and they're gonna to have to clean it out. Um, how are you guys doing that? Are you guys uh, can you can you just explain like the general? Um, I talked with Greg about different sizes and stuff like that, but can you yep. give us kind of an overview of, of yeah, what that exactly. looks like? So, so we're going to have, um, so there's going to be a couple different components that are going to be associated with it. The first one, we'll start at the pumping system. So um, if you were to take a pump and just put it into a, a pond of water, say we just throw it down on the bottom, um, what's going to happen is it's going to draw all the water down into that area. It's not going to pre-filter a lot of stuff out, but what it does is it, it takes surface debris and it's just going to compact it down on the bottom. It's not going to get rid of it. So what we've done is we take that pump, we put it on the outside perimeter of the pond in sort of in a uh, outside skimmer system. Mm -hmm. So this is going to act as a pre-filter. So now what we have is we have the main pond and then we have a smaller little vessel on the side um, that has a pump in it. When we draw water out of this smaller vessel, the skimmer system, it's going to create a draw on the surface of the water. So um, what I try to do, and and if we back this up, talking about uh, ecosystems and everything, what we're doing basically is biomimicry techniques. 
So biomimicry is we're taking a natural system and we're reverse engineering it and we're figuring out how it functions. Mm -hmm. So in nature, um, if you have a lake or a river or a fluid, so everything is connected to the ocean at some point. Yeah, so that's H2O, river, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. going gonna, it's, it's gonna to overflow. You're going to have creeks and things that overflow out of larger lakes and goes into rivers and makes its way back to the ocean. Um, so what's going to happen is because of that flow, um, it's not going down into the groundwater. So by putting a pump down in the bottom, it's really acting against nature. So what we're trying to do is stick with that flow. So mm -hmm. instead of like a, a lake, we're building more uh, dynamic system is more river like, which is actually more realistic. So um, the Great Lakes right here in Chicago, the largest body of uh, a freshwater in the world has a flow to it, you know, but somebody's going to walk up to it and say, well, where does this go? Well, this goes over Niagara Falls. I mean, yeah. Lake Superior goes into Lake Michigan and it works its way all the way through. It eventually goes to the ocean. So everything flows. So what we're trying to do is um, we're trying to mimic that on a small scale. Hmm. So by having an external pre-filter skimmer system, um, it mimics that flow. We have that flow going across the top. But the reason I was trying to get to this point was um, what happens is uh, when we start talking about aquatic ecosystems, they're all nutrient driven. So nutrients as in organic compounds. So if you have a lake system that is a good fishing lake, northern Wisconsin, this would be considered a, me a mesotrophic ecosystem. Yeah. It means it has a medium amount of food. It means you're going to have good, clear water. You're going to have aquatic vegetation. You're going to have abundance of fish life. But it's going to be very, very healthy, good water quality. Everything's going to kind of be humming along. Now, over time, um, lakes actually, all lakes eventually die. So you're going to get leaf debris building up inside of them. You're going to have aquatic weeds that are going to start to grow. I shouldn't say weeds, aquatic vegetation. They're going to start to grow and it's going to start to take off. And what happens is the lake will start to accumulate sediments on the bottom and the water gets shallower and shallower and shallower. So what happens when that occurs is you have this big store of, of organic compounds in the bottom. But also as the water gets um, shallower, uh, it starts to get warmer. Warmer, hold, water, warmer water holds less dissolved oxygen. Now you have more sunlight penetration that's hitting down on those sediments. And what happens is you get more aquatic plant growth. More aquatic plant growth is great. You're going to have more animals associated with it. But what happens with warmer water with less, less dissolved oxygen, the nutrients can't break down quick enough. So the sedimentation process actually becomes faster and faster and faster through the life cycle of an ecosystem. Oh, so eventually, okay. eventually these systems are going to become a marsh. So they fill up with so much organic stuff. Um, and again, you, you look back geologically, this is a normal process. Um, coal, oil, I mean, that's what this stuff is. You know, it's geologically all this organic compounds decomposed and it, uh, it broke down into the basic compounds of or organics, so, uh, oils and fats and stuff like that. Um, and that gets stored and it gets trapped inside of it. So it is a normal process. But um, as a water feature designer, um, by building a small backyard pond, I don't want that to happen. It would happen really, really fast. Right. So like if you did a two-foot deep pond, it's going to fill up with sediment and stuff really, really quickly. So by having that skimmer pre-filter on there, you're basically you're consuming, you're drawing all of that floating debris off. That's called allochthonous uh, debris. Allochthonous debris is windblown stuff that comes in. It's going to be leaves, twigs, um, lawn clippings and stuff like that. So you're going to draw all that stuff in and now it's in a little catch basket. So instead of letting it accumulate down in the bottom of the pond, you're going to take that material away, you're going to throw it away, and then you put the basket back in place. So just by doing that one thing, it will greatly extend the viewing pleasure as well as the overall life cycle of a small backyard ecosystem. Yeah. Now, the other piece to that is once you have that skimmer system in place, we're going to take that water and we're going to discharge it into a stream or a waterfall. So what we did was we created an upflow biological filter, which we call our biofalls. We also do wetland filters and things. But a biological filter is actually really, 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 really simple. It's a it's a home for microorganisms. That's really all it is. Um, but there's a couple things that you need to do in order for it to function properly. 
So biological filters, uh, they have nitrifying bacteria. Um, they're going to colonize the, uh, the, the, the media that you have in there. It could be lava stone, could be bio balls, filter floss. I mean, there's a thousand different things you could use. Again, it's, it's just a home for these animals to attach to. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have the pre-filter first, so if you just have a pump sitting inside of a pond, you're going to start sucking in um, uh, leaf debris and matter inside of it. it gets chewed up by the pump. And what happens is that material gets discharged into your biofilter and it will um, it kind of it coats the biological media. And what it does is it suffocates the animals. They need a hard, clean surface to attach to. Mm. They're not going to live on the sediment. So what happens is you're going to build the feature. And if you don't have these different pieces in place, it'll function fine for a a month or two, but eventually the water quality is going to start to change. So what we've done over the years, and Greg's been doing it longer than I have, but I've been uh, with him for 28 years. I've designed and built thousands of features all over the world. So we've kind of fine-tuned that recipe. We know what the flow rate is. We know the pre-filter. We know the biological filtration. And if we put these different pieces in place, it's going to function. and It'll function perfectly. We can get very repeatable resorts. Now, yeah. I, I should say most of the time, you know, there's always that, you know, when you start talking about a living ecosystem, hmm. everything gets thrown out the window because in nature, there's always going to be a unique situation. There's always going to be something that can go wrong. So can things happen? Of course they can. Um, but what we want to do is we want to stack the, the, the deck in our favor. Yeah. So by putting all these pieces in place, it's going to give us a higher opportunity for success. And it's because we've used biomimicry techniques. Um, I had a professor in college um, that called the, uh, the wetlands of the world the kidneys of the earth. Hmm. So when you start thinking of your kidneys, they remove the toxins and they, they, they pass that uh, uh, the urine basically um, out of your body and, and it goes as waste. So uh, wetland filters, when you start to break them down and start to figure out how they function, they are the kidneys for the earth because they are responsible for the filtering of our aquatic ecosystems. Yeah. Man, that's huge. Oh, I love going. I love, I love going over. There's a, so I was watching Camp Cannon like a while ago. Um, love that dude. But yep. when, when you guys first put in one of his, um, he takes this white packet and he just tosses it into his, uh, his marshland filter thing. Yep. Um, and it, and it's, it's uh, bacteria. It's, it's yep. a starter pack. Can you tell us about like, yeah. um, just, I, I know some of this, right? I love this, but for for the people at home, like, what's up with with bacteria? Why why do you need that in the pond? And can you explain the little white packet that you guys? Yeah, have? yeah, of course. So bacteria. I mean, you look around you. Uh, we would not be alive without it. So we have bacteria living all over our body. We have it in each every organ inside of us has its own specific strains of bacteria that are associated with it. You look at rocks, you look at uh, plants, you look at aquatic ecosystem. I mean, the the stuff is unbelievable. Um, So what we're doing is the bacterial world, just because it's invisible to us, doesn't mean it's a battleground. Hmm. So bacterias are fighting for their place in the sun. So they want to they wanna populate the world just like we do. So they yeah. want to reproduce and they want to literally have world domination, right? So they want right. one species wants to take over, but it's never going to happen because certain habitats are more conducive to other bacteria than others to live on. So bacterias kind of have evolved over the years and they've adapted to certain situations, but there's still a battleground happening. So what we do is what we've done is we've taken um, healthy strains of bacteria, that are going to give us desired results in our aquatic ecosystems. We want to take those specific strains and we want to implant them into the ecosystem to ensure we have the right bacterial strains to break down nitrogenous waste, to to make sure that we can break down the cellulose and the different organic compounds that are going to build up in the ecosystem. Now, there are tons of arguments out there. Will nature do it on its own? Absolutely. If you were to build a pond nature will blow in its own bacteria, but you don't know what it's going to be. It could be a cyanobacteria that's coming from a, a, a wastewater treatment facility, which mm-hmm. is a really nasty strain of bacteria, and it gets hold in there, and then all of a sudden, the results change. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you have a strain in there, just like us getting a virus. It's like, I don't want that one in there. I want mm-hmm. to make sure that I have the desired results. I want to make sure I have clean, clear water. I want to make sure that my aquatic ecosystem is armed and ready to 
process all these wastes generated by fish and things like that in the right way. Um, so by adding those strains, it's going to ensure I have the optimal stuff inside of there. But the lifespan of bacteria is nothing. I mean, it's so fast. Like they grow super fast and then they die really fast. So it's this kind of like a, a cyclical wave that actually happens. Uh-huh. So what we want to do is I'm going to add in bacteria on a routine basis because I'm going to have a population that's going to peak when all the food and all the conditions are perfect. And then all of a sudden they're going to consume all that stuff. And then the population crashes because there's not enough resources for those animals to live. They're not completely eradicated, but they're going to drop down to really low levels. So what happens now, all of a sudden, that opens the door for potential other ones to come in and take hold. So by us constantly adding bacteria into Mm. it, I know I'm going to have a saturated situation with the desired species. Again, think of... Think of the the African plains. I mean, there's there's animals fighting for everything, all those resources. It's the same thing in an aquatic ecosystem on a microscopic level. We're going to have all these little animals that are fighting for their place in the world. So we want to have the ones that we know are going to give us the desired results. Yeah. So, Ed, are they um, are they battling each other, or do they win by consuming and having a larger population than the other bacteria? Are they actually like beefing and, and fighting with each other? Um, well, there are. So the bacteria themselves won't battle together, but okay. there's going to be copepods, rotifers, tardigrades, and other animals that will consume them. Okay. So they all of a sudden become food. So, you know, when you look at that uh, that pyramid, so go back to that Stephen Forbes guy, the lake as a microcosm, you got to go all the way down to the bacterial level because they're responsible for the cycling of nutrients. Hmm. Without them actually breaking down organic compounds, um, there's really nothing for the rest of the food chain to eat. So they take those nutrients, they put it into their cells, and then you have uh, a Daphnia, copepod, rotifer starts to feed off of them, and then they're available for feeding um, by small fish, yeah. uh, by, by shrimp, by other larger animals, and then it cycles through the entire ecosystem. Okay. Uh, just real quick, randomly, uh, Daphnia, so I, I keep fish too, and mostly because yep. I, I grow them to feed my alligator snapping turtle. But Nice. Um, but I want them to be healthy, so I give them Daphnia and stuff like that. Sure. Are, are Daphnia, like, are they wildly occurring, like, in, in Illinois? Lakes oh, absolutely. And I, okay. I actually... Um, uh, I, I actually have a video of them on my phone. Oh, no way. <laughs> They're awesome. tiny. I mean, you, you could actually see them visibly. Um, so in my personal pond, um, I go out in the evening time when the lights are on and you could see they're like little water fleas or tiny little specks. Mm-hmm. And these are Daphnia that are swimming around because they're going to be one of the bigger plankton, you know, <laughs> when you, when you look at different, uh, types of zooplankton. So they're visible by the, by the human eye, but okay. they're just like these little dots and you, but you'll see them. Um, they could actually swim against currents to an extent, but you'll see them in front of the lights and it's because, um, that's where they, they're going to feed. Yeah, they like the lights. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that's so cool. Um, cool. (laughs) Well, okay, so so going back to, like, the dying lakes thing, I I read a a, a book um, when I was younger about ecosystems and stuff, and I put this out of my mind because it freaked me out, but um, there's, like you had already mentioned, I don't know the words for them, but different types of lakes that really, they start out really deep, and then the sedimentation happens, and and I always was interested in the marsh, so I kind of, but it freaks me out because it's like all of these lakes are dying, like you said, they're, or they're, or they're filling up, you know, they're, different animals are able to live because of that process. But do lakes without man-made locks and stuff, do we get new lakes or are we eventually just going to run out of lakes? They're all going to be marshes. <laughs> uh, so there still is tectonic activity. So some of the largest lakes and so great lakes were caused by the glaciation period. Mm-hmm. So the large glaciers that came out of Northern Canada, it scoured out that soft, uh, the softer sediments and rock and things like that. And it, it dug out the, the great lake systems and then those slowly filled up with water. But the largest lakes in the world, Lake Tanganyika, Lake Baikal and uh, Russia, those are those are tectonic. So those were caused by um, by shifts in the tectonic plates. So during earthquakes and it opened up these vast valleys and then they slowly fill up with water. So lakes are still being born. Um, So some of those lakes are actually there are some tectonic lakes that are actually pretty new. Um, But everything, you know, when you look from a geological perspective, I mean, it it, it just blows your mind, you know, from, um, you know, from a, a time frame, you know, everything. Gravity wants to make everything flat. Hmm. So we have these, you know, the Himalayas, massive, you know, huge peaks. Um, Over time, they're slowly going to be eroded away and they're going to be foothills. And it's because of 
the ice, the snow, um, you know, the, the freeze thaw periods are going to bust up these huge boulders and brings them down lower. And then rain slowly erodes them away. It's going to take a million years, billion years, whatever. I, you know, I can't even tell you, but eventually they're going to be they're going to be flat. So the world is very dynamic. You know, uh, you know, it's the most incredible thing. Well, obviously, <laughs> on our in our world. But, um, you know, there are places. So you have subduction zones where land is disappearing and it goes underground and it goes turns back into magma. And then you have um, other zones that are going to be upheaval zones um, where mountains are going to can be continually born. So there's this constant revitalization process that happens on planet Earth. So lakes are being killed but they're also being born. The problem is um, if we look at uh, anthropogenic uh, eutrophication. So the eutrophication cycle is that natural cycle that is um, the death of a pond. And I don't okay. like to say the death, the aging of a pond. Sure. So what you were talking about, you're looking at an oligotrophic system. Mm-hmm. So an oligotrophic ecosystem, oligos means little or few. I think, I don't know if it's Greek uh, or Latin, I forget the root word, but oligos means little or few. Um, so it means there's a little amount of food in it. So an oligotrophic ecosystem would be like Lake Tahoe. So a deep lake, crater lake, very poor watershed, very low amounts of nutrients, very clear water. But if you went down into the sediments, there's not a lot of sediment there. Mm. So it's basically, it's rock, it's gravel. So it's very, very, there's, there's not a lot of food in the water for the bacteria to break down um, to basically feed the whole e- ecosystem. Yeah. So that's why the water so clear is there's no plankton in it. So mm. plankton is that 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 uh, that gateway basically to life. So that when you have a plankton bloom, you have nutrients that go up into a water column. Plankton wants to grow, uh, grow from that, so they're going to feed off of those dissolved nutrients in the water, and then you have an, a whole food chain starts off of it. But if you don't have that base level of store of food, um, nothing really is going to grow. And when we talk about biomimicry concepts, um, that's what we're trying to achieve with our backyard ecosystems. I'm typically designing an oligotrophic to a mesotrophic system. So I like to have a little bit of food because I want to have some aquatic plants. But if you get too much, the water is going to be green as can be. I mean, it's going to be dark green because you have huge amounts of plankton and algal growth and stuff like that. They're going to dominate the ecosystem. And that's the eutrophication process. It goes from those deep, clear lakes. It slowly gets shallower and shallower. You get more aquatic vegetation. Eventually, it's become um, a dark green swamp with heavy, heavy aquatic vegetation. And then it's going to become a wet meadow. And then eventually, it will become a meadow after that and then a forest. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's cool stuff. It is cool. So I, I just dug a little, um, I'm calling it a vernal pool. Um, yep. it, it, it kind of looks like that, um, yep. but for, for some spotted turtles and I didn't want to current, but, but we could talk about this later. Cause I, I need okay. some, some pointers on, on what to yep. do. Um, but that, that whole process, it's, it's so interesting. Do you think there's a role, like what role do humans have in, in that process? Should we just let that happen or do we, is it ever appropriate for us to um, combat that aging process? Um, you know, we got natural lakes. I live up in Lake County and there's a lot of sand bottoms and stuff. And I'm wondering, you know, is that even natural? Did did we just put sand in there and what does that do to the algae and to the fish? And we, we stock with fish, but maybe we haven't set up the ecosystem right for them to thrive. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a great question. So, um, I mentioned it briefly during my little rambling there a, a few minutes ago, but anthropogenic, uh, eutrophication is basically man-made eutrophication process. So we've changed the watershed. So we've, um, channelized river systems. Um, again, I, I live in farm country, so I'm surrounded by farms. I have a small farm at myself. So I have five and a half acres. I got animals. I got, I got goats and horses and chickens and all types of stuff. Um, but the, you know, the big giant scale um, in farming world where you have a, a, um, a, 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 a mono crop. So, you know, it's basically you're going to have all one type of, of crop inside of it. Uh, you're going to have heavily tilled soils and things. That's starting to kind of disappear. We're starting to see more um, no-till zones and things like that. Hmm. So when I start talking about anthropogenic uh, eutrophication, we want to control soil from washing off into our river systems. So the Army Corps of Engineers currently is responsible for keeping our waterways open. 
Uh, I, I couldn't even tell you how many billions of dollars they spend on a yearly basis um, to remove sediment from our lakes, rivers, and streams to keep ports open, to keep water waterways flowing. Because we have changed the watersheds, we're getting an abnormally high amount of sediments going yeah. into the water. It's clogging up the waterways, it's changing the water chemistry, um, and it's, it's, it's stopping that natural process. So we are currently... Uh, we currently manipulate these ecosystems right now. Okay, we're out there. We're out there managing it, but uh, a lot of work. So there are um, soil conservation areas that are set up. So now, when you go to a large farm, um, they are they can no longer plow right up to the edge of a natural creek or river system. They have to have buffers. So the if you have a just a, a 20 or 30 foot buffer strip of natural prairie vegetation and trees and things like that, the amount of sedimentation that comes in is dropped by 90 plus percent. Whoa. Just by having these little buffer strips. So again, somebody has to sacrifice. So it's the farmers that are sacrificing some of their land, but it's for the greater good. So we are looking at things and again, go back to those biomimicry techniques. If we look at existing ecosystems and if we start to see what makes those tick, we could reverse engineer those systems to figure out how we could make these ecosystems work. Obviously, we need food. We can't get rid of the farms. I mean, I'm not saying get rid of farms by any right. means. Right. You know, uh, it's impossible. So we, we live on the planet, but we can do it a little bit more sustainably. Yeah. Um, so by putting in these buffer strips and by by, by taking care, um, by by disconnecting actually downspouts. So a lot of downspouts, actually, I think there was a big push in, in uh, Cook County to disconnect all of your gutter systems from the storm sewers. Wow. Um, to protect that uh, that watershed, so disconnect it and have it just flow into your grass, because yeah. so so when you look at a roof system, you know we talked briefly about it um, about impermeable surfaces, but you fly into Chicago and if you look over over the city of Chicago, over any major city, you're going to see rooftops as far as you can see in all directions. So every roof. So for every 1,000 square feet of roof, um, one inch of rain is 620 gallons of water on 1,000 square feet. The average roof in the United States is 3,000 square feet. So that's 1,800 gallons of water in a one-inch rain event just off of the roof. So if you can disconnect that from the storm sewer supply, it's going to alleviate the uh, the the uh, kind of that that rush of water going to our into our storm sewer systems yeah. and it's also it's going to put water back into the uh subsoils so we're actually um i don't know where, where you lived are you on uh city water or on well no, we, we got a well yeah okay um do you happen to know how deep your well is no idea. Just bought the house a couple months ago. Okay. I don't know. Right. Any, I'm a terrible homeowner. Yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't know. So unless <laughs> unless you brought out a well guy to, to do a, a measurement on you, you'll have no idea. So I have two wells on my property. One is 55 feet deep, um, which is very shallow. And then the other is over 600 feet deep. Whoa. Two different types of water quality. Um, but what's happening, a lot of shallower wells in the Chicagoland area um, are, are going dry. Um, so... Well, diggers have to go in and they're, they're making the wells deeper. And it's because what's happening is um, when you look at groundwater, um, it's going to be fluctuating all the time. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is we put in all these impermeable surfaces on top. We have concrete, asphalt, roof structures and things like that. We're taking all that water, putting it into, into a pipe system, yeah. and we're taking it away from our geographic area. So the water where we're at right here in St. Charles goes all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> all of our wastewater goes to the Gulf of Mexico, huh. um, which is a thousand miles away. <laughs> so traditionally, all the wastewater that all the rainwater that fell here, majority of it would soak into the subsoils to replenish those groundwater reserves. So we have two things that are happening. So we're taking all that uh, rainwater, we're pushing it away, but we're also putting in a bunch of little straws into the ground because we have wells and we're drawing water out. So we're drawing the water down. Mm. We're not putting it back in fast enough. Yeah. So what's happening is we're seeing drops in groundwater levels. Um, and again, nationwide, it's bigger and drier parts of the world. Um, so Southern California, um, if you go into the Western United States, um, there's a process called subsidence. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Mm -hmm. So subsidence is, um, have you ever built a sandcastle? Yeah. Okay, so go to a beach, build a sandcastle. You're going to take wet sand, right? So you uh -huh. get 
sand wet, you could pack it together and it holds itself up. Um, and it, that's because the water molecules fill the interstitial space between the sand particles. So now mm -hmm. it acts like a glue. Um, so what happens if you start drawing groundwater out too quickly from the ground um, and you're not replenishing it, the, uh, the void space starts to dry up. So the process of subsidence is, is the ground, the, the normal ground level is actually getting compressed. It's sinking. And it's because we're drawing the water oh, out God. and it's getting compacted. Yeah. So if you look at some pictures in Southern California, there's areas where it's dropped 20, 15 to 20 feet. So the, literally the ground is just sinking and it's because they're drawing the water out and now there's a void space there. Again, it's microscopic, but right. when you start drawing out billions of gallons for, adds for, up. for the city of Los Angeles, yeah. it's like, yeah, it adds up. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I can't imagine that com compacted soil would be good for plants either. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. 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 Man, that's yeah, crazy. So just blew my mind. There's all this, there's a whole, again, when we look at, the, the, the earth as a as an ecosystem we're not creating or we're not destroying the water we're moving it though from one area to the other mm -hmm. so by kicking it out of the groundwater reserves it's going somewhere it's going yeah. up into the upper upper atmosphere it's 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 nourishing our crops obviously so the process of evaporative transpiration our bodies are made up of 70 percent water etc so so water is constantly moving throughout our ecosystem as well as other compounds um but it's shifting and it's shifting very quickly and it's swinging back and forth which again i i'm uh i mean you look at uh, we just had some massive storms last night you yeah, know big time. Uh, i'm sure you got hit pretty hard on the north side <laughs> yeah. yeah big time yeah i mean we're, we're getting and what's unique about illinois um all these huge storms that are popping up there's a direct correlation again i'm not against farming at all um but uh you have thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of acres of crops. Um, they're basically through their growth processes. You, I mean, I have corn in my backyard. It's 10 feet tall. So what it's doing is it's taking moisture out of the ground and through the process of evaporative transpiration, it's pumping water vapor into the atmosphere. So we're getting these midsummer storms because we have this huge map, massive cropland that is just pumping tons of water vapor up into the atmosphere yeah. and it makes this hot sticky humid environment again it's natural i'm not saying we're, we're throwing things off could we be changing things i mean this area was marshland before was it happening i didn't live here 200 years ago i couldn't right. tell you that i know what happens in florida you know florida you got the, the everglades same thing it put, puts tons of that water vapor up in the upper atmosphere and it creates a volatile uh, atmosphere. And then you get these huge rain events. So what it's basically doing is it's all right. Okay. It's trying to stabilize itself. Sure. All this water vapor is going up. It's going to reach a saturation point. And then if it, the faster it goes up, the faster it comes down. So it's going to create these huge storm cells that are going to just dump ridiculous amounts of water back on the ground. But the problem is we've short circuited the system. So we're yeah. not putting it back into the ground. It's we're pushing it off into storm sewers. So it's this it's this crazy vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah, man, that's so crazy. Well, the fact that you you focus so much on water movement is so interesting to me because I wouldn't have even thought of that. I, I was on an architecture tour of Chicago the other day, and they were talking about how we we changed the flow um, yep. of, of, the, the, of the river. Yep, and and now it goes down there, and so now all of our water which we need is gone. It's it's leaving. Yeah. That's so, I never thought of that. That's really crazy to think about. And if you want your own soil, well, Edman, there's got to be some kind of way to, <laughs> to put the water in your ground. That's not like on your foundation. Cause everyone, I'm a new house owner, new homeowner. Yep. Everyone's always look, you want water away from your foundation. I'm like, okay, fine. Yep. Uh, have you thought about this? Have you thought yeah, about I mean, a way? Absolutely. I do rainwater capture systems all the time. So I'll do underground reservoirs where I take all the water off of the roof of the house, which is an incredible source of water. It's great for fish tanks and it's great sure. for ponds and things. Yeah. It's basically distilled water. I yeah, mean, it's like it's, neutral pH or something it, close it, to it. It's exactly neutral pH. It's a great, great source. So what I'll do is I'll take these underground stores of rainwater. And uh, once I have it captured, I'll use it in uh, decorative fountains. I'll do it for ponds. I'll use it for irrigation, drip irrigation. You can use, mm. use it for washing your car and windows because Chicago, we have very hard water here. Super hard, and, yeah. 
because of our high limestone. Um, so ground uh, rainwater is soft. I mean, it's a great source of water for washing things because it doesn't leave all those little white spots on everything. Yeah. So, I mean, th- there's all types of things that could be done with it. Um, there's also rain gardens are a really, really simple, low-tech way to, uh, to manage it. A rain garden is basically you're going to take all your downspouts and you're going to dig out a small, shallow depression somewhere on your property away from your house, you know, dig it 50 feet away. So it doesn't have a chance of getting back in, dig out a shallow depression, mix in some sand with the soil as well as compost, reroute your, um, your downspouts into there. And now these little areas will fill up with rainwater and you could plant them with all types of unique marsh plants and vernal pool type things. Yeah. You know, all these little cool plants that will periodically flood and then it will slowly allow that water to soak into the subsoil. So it's, it's a huge benefit. Huge. Yeah. That's fantastic. I just put in a rain capture, uh, just just tub because my my snapping turtles they don't like hard water, so we yep. we we figured that out. Um, okay, so so I bet you probably have a um, I'm I'm drawing a blank. So you have you have a well, so that yep. means you you probably have. Um, I'm trying to think of your, where oh, your oh. waste goes. Uh, a, a septic system. Yeah, septic. Do you have, do you have a septic field? Yes. Can you tell me about? I have like. What does that do to the environment? Because I just think like my soap and all this stuff goes down into the ground. Right. Is that, is that people say, you know, it gets filtered out and I'm like, dude, I, I mean, I don't know. This is probably like 1950s technology. Yeah. Um, it, what it, do you, what do you, what do you make of that? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a, I have a septic system as well. I've actually um, built a couple septic systems, I guess, in my, my lifetime as well. It's not a fun, fun job, but um <laughs> So basically what you have is you're going to have a septic tank. So you're going to have all the water from your house is going to go into a thousand gallon tank of some sort. Could be a poly tank, could be concrete, depending upon how old your house is. You're going to have an area for solids to, to settle out. That needs to be pumped out every couple of years. So you're going to, there's there's an access cap. Some, a lot of times people bury them. So you're going to need to expose that again. And then uh, you'll have a septic guy come out and they'll remove the solid material. Um, but you're going to, you should be adding, you could add bacteria just like we right. add to our ponds. You can go to uh, Ace Hardware, Home Depot, wherever, any home home improvement store, and they have little white packets, just like Kenan was throwing in in his pond, uh. of microorganisms. You're going to throw it, you're going to flush it down your toilet, and those little microorganisms are going to break down all the organic compounds inside your septic system. So they're mm-hmm. going to help keep it clean. Yeah. Um, but what happens is this: the solids actually fill up in the one tank. You're going to have the black water come out mixture of uh, a mixture of everything coming from your house including your showers toilets sinks etc um, this is going to go into a leach field so that leach field cannot be that deep but they're typically 24 inches or less and okay. it's because you want to saturate that top layer of, uh, of ground uh, with the waste. Um, so it's going to allow some of that stuff to soak down into the soil, but it's also going to make it biologically available. It's going to have an evapor- evaporation process going to occur, and it's going to manage that excess water. Um, but microorganisms are key. I mean, that's basically how it works is you yeah. have to have the right stuff living. Um, now, thankfully, when you have a septic field, um, nature has given us pretty much most of those microorganisms because the soils that we have are full of them. So if you have compost, if you have black dirt on your property, those are basically bacteria, fungi, and all these different organisms are breaking down organic compounds. And those are going to be the same guys and uh, animals that are found inside of uh, your septic field. Um, Now, typically um, they can get clogged up over time. Um, but, uh, it, it depends on how, how they were made. It depends sure. on your home, how many people in it, et cetera. So by the time that, that water gets down, uh, I live right between two lakes. By the time it, it's getting into the, the, um, the, the other water, the, the, I'm trying to think of the name for yeah, it, the, the watershed. watershed. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, is it safe then, or does it kind of depend on if this guy set it up well? Yeah, so there are rules and regulations. So there are setbacks. So um, septic fields have to be a certain distance away from natural bodies of water. Um, Your well also needs to be set a certain distance from your septic field. Um, So again, there are older homes that are going to be grandfathered in. So newer homes going forward, they have very, very strict uh, guidelines. But if you go up into Wisconsin, Minnesota, and things like that, there are a lo- lot of old cottages that were built along the shorelines of these beautiful lake areas that have really old septic systems, and they are going 
almost directly back into the lake system. Wow. So they're releasing tons of nitrogen, phosphorus, and all types of E. coli and stuff into the watershed. Yeah. So, um, and, and there's testing that, that people are doing for that stuff. And um, new homes moving forward cannot do it. Um, but a lot of these old ones, like I said, they, uh, um, people are allowed to keep them. But yeah. it's a big problem. Well, so I have just, I have grass uh, and I, I never grew up. I didn't, I grew up with Chicago water. Didn't all this is brand new to me, yeah. but I figure there's just grass on top of my septic field. And I would, I would think it'd be better to have like cattails or something like some kind of marshy. Does it, does that matter? Or should, yeah, should we um, be working on something like that? Yeah. You know what? Um, that's a good question. Grass is the most typical, but uh, you know, kind of having a small prairie would probably be well. I don't know if it'd be wet enough for the cattails, Okay. Um, you know, like a rain garden, like, the cattails need a little bit more uh, water, water moisture, um, but they might work. I mean, um, but yeah, different types of prairie plants. So cattails, um, if you've ever ripped up cattails, they have a pretty short, yeah. they, they, don't, they don't grow really deep. So they have right. a really thick, short mat of a cat uh, of the root system. Um, so what you're going to want for like a septic field is you're going to want a deeper root structure. Okay. So um, a prairie drop seed. Um, is an incredible native plant. Prairie drop seed will send its roots um, up to 15 feet <laughs> down into the subsoil. It's a tiny little grass. So it's like an iceberg. You know, the, the little tip that comes out of the ground is actually minuscule compared to the mass of roots underground. Yeah. Um, but they're responsible for the cycling and the carbon balance and, uh, of, uh, of our soils. And that was a native here. So native plants uh, for Illinois would be fantastic idea. Okay. Awesome. All right, man. So, so, so two more uh, before we finish up and do a tour here. Um, I believe that this was you. Um, you were flying and you took a picture of this lake and it was like one of the worst uh, human made disasters because it's like a salt, uh, oh, salt yeah. lakey type thing in, in California. Can you just real quick, like a cautionary tale? Can you, can you <laughs> fill us in on that? Yeah. So the Salton Sea, Southern California. So that was created. Um, there was a breach in a, in a dike or a levee um, on the, uh, on the um, Colorado River. Um, so this breach in the dam uh, took all the water and it shunted it into this uh, shallow depression in Southern California. It was basically a big valley um, and it flooded it. It filled the whole thing up with, uh, with water. And it took them um, a year or two years to actually rebuild the levee wow. to reroute the uh, the river back into its normal course. So for uh, that period that the levee was broken, you know, countless billions of gallons of water flooded this entire area and it's super saturated it. So it became, uh, they actually, people started liking it. They're like, wow, there's a huge lake here, Southern California. We got this incredible, you know, weather in Southern California and now we have lakeside living. Um, but what happens is that lake um, there's not enough water feeding it now naturally. So it's slowly starting to decline. The other thing that was happening is that area that it flooded was an old shallow sea. So when we go back geologically again, um, that was an area that was a shallow part of the ocean. So there was actually uh, uh, salt water in that area. So all that valley was loaded with salt deposits. So when you dump in all this fresh water into it and stirred it all up through wind action, now all of a sudden it created this saline type of a lake. So what's happening, just like the Great Salt Lake and things like that, what's happening is the amount of evaporation is greater than the amount of water coming into it. So the water level continues to drop. And when it's dropping, um, and you're familiar with this from fish tanks and things, I don't know if you keep uh, salt water, but uh, pure water evaporates and it's going to leave all the chlorides behind. So all yeah. the salts are going to stay uh, inside of that water. So the water is getting saltier and saltier and saltier. Um, so what's happening is the water is getting warm. The increased salinity is killing off all the fish that were once living in there because now those fish can no longer survive the salty solutions. Um, so uh, you have this incredible stench of dead, decaying fish, as well as exposed banks because the water level continues to drop. And this was uh, this has been in the it's been uh, there now for I don't know how many decades. But all those sediments and stuff that built up now are exposed to the atmosphere. Um, they're starting to dry up, and it's actually creating toxic winds that are taking all this stuff and is blowing it across the southwest. And there's, there's all types of. And there was I think there was some um, uh, there was some other uh, pollution added to it 
um, from wastewater treatment facilities as well as small scale manufacturing. So it's just turned into an environmental disaster. Jeez, man. <laughs> yeah. When you, when you posted that, I was like, that is insane. Right. Um, so yeah, we got to be careful. Water flows, man. And, and we, I think we're called to be stewards of it well. And we have a lot of great examples of us not stewarding it very well. Um, yeah, I yeah. Ed, I wanted to, I wanted to end with, with uh, one more thing on, uh, on beauty yep. and beauty in nature. So your, your guys' your ponds are awesome. I would, I would promote them, um, or your water features because like turkeys come in and like all sorts of cool animals and it's, it's great. I'm, I'm sure the green frogs, like their population has exploded because of you guys. Right. Um, things, things like that, but they're also just very, very beautiful. They got all these lily pads and stuff like that. Um, I think that, uh, so I'm a Christian, so I think that like nature is beautiful because I think God made it beautiful and stuff like that. Um, just from, from your worldview, from your perspective, man, wh- uh, why, why is water and e- water ecosystems like, why do we humans find those beautiful? That's a really, 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 really good question. So why do we find them beautiful? Um, so um, I think it's hardwired inside of us. Hmm. So if you look back, uh, go back in history again, you know, you should always be looking at our past, what's been happening throughout the world. Every major city and civilization was founded along a river system or a lake system, hmm. every single one. And it's because it was a source of food. It was a source of water. It was uh, raw materials, shelter, transportation, all these different things. So so a- as a Christian, so the Fertile Crescent, you know, of, uh, yeah. um, of, of the Mideast, you know, this is where this is where man came to life. Hmm. And it's because it was the Fertile Crescent is the name says it all. Um, this little valley area had water flowing through it. And what happens during seasonal rain events is these river systems are going to raise up. They're going to flood. They take all that uh, that sediment load. So all of those suspended solids that get washed into them now settle out in these alluvial plains and these floodplain areas. And it takes this mixture of silts and sands and clays and organics and it creates this incredible planting area for us to grow crops. Yeah. So if you go back, like I said, it's hardwired in us because our species survived on this planet because we were able to adapt to mm. these different areas. So we started in these valleys saying, oh, my gosh, our ancestors were able to move from this location to this location because we succeeded we succeeded because we had the necessary resources. We had food, we had water, we had shelter, we had plant areas to grow our crops. So I believe it's inside of us to seek these places out because that's what humanity has done over the years. Hmm. There's also, again, there's some weird biochemical reactions that happen inside of our body. Right. You know, our bodies, when you break down the constituents of our of the water in our body, it has the same compounds as the, as the ocean. It's exactly the same. So it's the same relationship of uh, of calcium and iron and potassium and all these different things. It's the same stuff inside of us. So when we get near these water bodies, there's an exchange that's happening that we we honestly cannot even probably fully understand. Yeah, Um, we just intuitively like it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So there's all types of cool studies on it. It's called the Blue Mind. Uh, The Blue Mind. There's a uh, um, uh, Dr. Wallace Nichols. Um, he actually worked with a team of scientists and they set up, uh, EEGs and brain scans and everything on people's, on, on the, on, on the brain activity and showed them different pictures and even took them to oceans. And he said, when people get near water, areas of our brain just light up hmm. and he's like, and you can't you can't actually put your finger on it, but it happens. I, I know it happens with me when I get near water. It's like oh, it's vacation time. I'm loving yeah. this. This is awesome. Right. You know, right. it's like, I'm going to kick back. I'm going to relax. I'm going to. And it's and it goes back to our childhood. But our childhood is basically, again, it's hardwired. It, it's yeah. happened throughout history. So, I mean, I, I think it's really cool. And unfortunately, there's a huge disconnect right now in the world because most people are growing up in urban or suburban environments where we no longer have access to those natural areas. And I think we're setting ourselves up for a dangerous situation because it's people like us, you know, that have fish tanks and grew up out in the woods and rivers and stuff like that. We want to protect it. I, yeah. I mean, yes, that, that, that's, that's my, that's my goal. So actually I, I, I've done a bunch of different presentations, but have you ever looked at the meaning of your name before? 
My name? It's uh, someone who keeps keeps the parks. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. All right. What about the last name? Uh, it means seven houses. So. Okay. Yeah. So so uh, Edgar. So I'm, I go by Ed, but my real name is Edgar. Edgar is a protector of property. Oh, nice. Baloo is French, and it means beautiful place. <laughs> so I'm the protector of the beautiful place. That's hilarious, man. <laughs> what a perfect name. Right? That's so, so good. But I think it's up to us to educate and build cool environments and teach yeah. and open up people's eyes because it is an incredibly beautiful world. Mm. It is right now. And I, I want it to be like that forever. Um, yeah. So it, it's up to us to not destroy it. And we are stewards of the earth and we yeah. have to understand it and appreciate it. And by having a small backyard ecosystem or fish tank, whatever you want to call it, you're definitely more in tune with what's happening in nature. Yes. And you, and you could uh, help write the new legislation for, future generations uh, yeah. so i think it's 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 important and it's awesome it's so awesome you get me all fired up i'm at a hard time just sitting here um <laughs> it, it, gets, it gets me fired up because i was a kid and my dad brought home a snapping turtle and it changed my whole life yep. uh and and showing kids nature showing them animals they're going to want to grow up and they're going to say look i'm going to write some legislation because we need a spot for spotted turtles we need a spot for blanding's turtles and that's going to be their thing and, and maybe that's just the one thing they do but it has this ripple effect. And I love you guys, um, not just because I'm in this amazing place, but because if someone, if some kid grows up and their parents have an aquascape pond and they see frogs in there, they're going to say, I want to go see those other places too. I don't want to just see it here. I want to go see lily pads out in the wild. I want to go catch a, a, a fish. I want to go catch some frogs, catch a muskie underneath some big, awesome lily pads, man. It gets you all yep. fired up. And you say, look, we have to protect these. We have to. I want my kids to see this stuff too. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I brought my boys up in that same environment. Actually, my oldest son uh, worked as a fishing guide for years, uh, fly fishing. Hmm. And now he works for the Conservation Foundation in Naperville. And he's out today doing water quality testing in one of the local rivers That's here awesome. in northern Illinois. That's so awesome. Yeah, yeah right. Man. That's so good. Um, well, Ed, this has been fantastic, man. Uh, but it's not over yet. So, folks, um, I'll put a link to our other video. We're going to go do a tour of Aqualand. It's going to be awesome. See all this cool stuff. I, I'm surprised I was able to sit here this whole time because I'm so worked up, so uh, amped up here. Ed, thanks for all your time, man. This has been really fantastic. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go do the tour. That's going to have to do it for now, folks. Um, but, but stay tuned for the next one. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God. <laughs>